Welcome to Value Added, the real estate podcast where we speak with the brightest minds in the world of real estate who provide, create, and realize value in an ever-changing market. If you're a real estate professional delivering value to your clients, an investor creating value not seen by others, or a busy professional who passively invests in real estate to grow the value of their hard-earned dollar, then you're in the right place. And now your host, Nick Walters. Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Value Added, the real estate podcast. On this week's episode, we're chatting with Dylan Marma. Dylan is the founder of Cirrus Capital, a Knoxville, Tennessee-based investment firm. Cirrus Capital provides investment opportunities for qualified investors in the commercial real estate market, specifically in the multifamily asset class. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Dylan Marma, welcome to the program. Good to have you. Thanks for having me, Nick. Excited to be here. Tell the listeners a little bit more about you and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, relatively young uh, as far as my career goes, 26 years old. I've been investing in real estate for the last five years now. I had a story where I was growing up, always expecting to go sort of the traditional route. I grew up in upstate New York. So naturally the thing to do was go and start working towards getting your accounting degree and getting into finance. And that's the path that I thought I was going to go. And I had a bit of a wake up call halfway through college where I really began to deep dive into a lot of these entrepreneurship and personal growth books and explore other avenues of, of getting out there and creating wealth. And I really just became enamored with the idea of being a real estate investor, being an entrepreneur. And when you're you know, 19 years old, uh, you know, finishing up school and going that route feels like such a long haul. So I really, I was, I was so eager to get out there. I, I left halfway through school, uh, moved out to California with the intention of getting into real estate investing, started working a W-2 job for a real estate investing company out there, spent three years with them, saving up my extra cash to buy my first single family property, then a duplex, started to learn the ins and outs on how investing works. And soon enough, I really took a, a look at multifamily and I saw the economies of scale that are presented with multifamily and also the ability to scale a, a true business with the model of syndication. So I really started to dedicate all my time and effort towards the, the business of syndication. And for the last three years now, I've been full-time in multifamily. I've moved out here to the Southeast where I'm currently based. I've worked on 50 million in total projects uh, through Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia. The first deal was in upstate New York, actually, funny enough. Uh, and, uh, and all in all, it's been a, it's been a great run. I uh, worked on JV's uh, general partner on syndications and, and, uh, you know, I uh, really just gotten a lot of, lot of experience in a, in a pretty short period of time. What was the hardest part for you transitioning from a W-2 position to getting out there on your own? I think number one, I made, I took a riskier bet than I would encourage for most people to do. I don't say for me to, to follow that same path, but I was in a position where I felt my backup was against the wall in terms of accomplishing my goals. I had been working 65, 70 hours a week. So it's not like I had time to go and travel to check out and be boots on the ground in the market. So I couldn't be boots on the ground. I didn't really have the time to be as active as I'd like to be. I didn't really have the money because when you get into multifamily, you'll never feel more 
broke than you, anything else because you're dealing with such a large, such a capital intensive business. So, so I didn't really have enough to make a, a, a real dent playing from afar in that sense. Uh, so, so I, and I, I lived in San Diego and there's no deals out there. So, so I, I got to a point where I said, listen, I'm convinced I have to go, I have to go free up some of my time, take the leap of faith and see what happens. So I move out to Atlanta, uh, start to, you know, build the relationships, build contacts throughout the Southeast, um, see where that leads, you know, and, I, and worst case scenario, I'm, you know, at the time young, I still don't have, you know, kids and, and wasn't married. So, um, you know, I had the ability to, to take that sort of bet on myself. Um, and um, I think psychologically, just, just leaving W2 and watching your money in your bank account go down every week rather than go up or, or even say flat, uh, it does play a little bit of an effect, uh, right? And, and also when you go into entrepreneurship, um, it's just never as clear as it is with the W-2, right? And I think that's for me part of what attracted me to it, but you have to be okay with that, right? Because there's, there's a million, there's no one right answer, or one way of doing things. You really have to blaze your own trail and, and create your own path and, and figure things out by testing and trying and, you know, experimenting and um, just, you know, really being disciplined with your, your overall ability to, to manage yourself. Trailblazing, you say. Exciting scary or all the above that's definitely all the above i'd say it's it's like anything else right it's like uh, you're on, you're on a roller coaster and you have that feeling in your your stomach right where you know it's going to be exciting you know it's going to be a little bit scary all at the same time and and that's sometimes where where you put yourself i and i don't think you have to go in over your head i think everyone has a certain level of of comfort uh that you know it's it's not like taking the most risk is always going to get you um, the best results, you know, if you take, uh, take not uncalculated risks, you could end up in a pretty bad spot overall, right? I think calculated risks is really what it's all about. And you have to factor in your life circumstances, your, you have to factor in the asset class you're looking at, right? You have to factor in what type of deals you're looking for. Um, and just, yeah, so, so it, it really plays it parallels really nicely in terms of, you know, both the way you look at deals when you're, when you're evaluating risks and the way you make life decisions, uh, evaluating the, you know, the risk and, and the opportunity and trying to find something that you can, you can live with the worst case scenario, we'll say. As a real estate investor in your mid twenties, what has been the hardest part of the real estate syndication business, raising capital from private investors? When it comes to raising capital from private investors, I, I think you really need to, first I'll, I'll touch on the age thing, right? Because some people might have questions on that, right? Of, oh, like I, you know, if I'm in my twenties, how am I going to be credible and have that kind of background? And, and that, that can be a limiting belief for some. So, so just to touch on that, number one, it comes from really, really knowing your stuff, right? And I felt before I had done my first deal, I was talking to people that had done several deals already. And I felt like I was ahead of them in terms of my base level of education. I'm not saying that to toot my own horn, but I'm saying just I was aggressively diving into every book I could get my hands on, aggressively talking to everyone I could, asking all the questions, never being afraid of looking stupid uh, when I didn't know things. And, and I think that having that, that base gave me personally the confidence that I needed to be able to talk to people because I knew the numbers, I knew what I was looking at, and, and there wasn't that, that part of me that was just afraid of getting asked a certain question because I felt I could hold my own in any conversation about the space. So, so I think it all starts with a foundation for, for education. That's probably not an age thing, but it definitely helps if you're, if you're already uh, a little bit uh, you know, conscious of, of what people are thinking about you uh, for being younger, right? Now, when it comes to the, other, the, the latter two, whether you're, you're new, 
to real estate or whether you're, you're young in, in general, um, I'd say you, you, most people are faced against this whole thing where they're uncomfortable talking about uh, raising money for their first deal because you don't have credibility yet. You kind of go, go through like a, a little bit of a you know, first deal syndrome where you're just not really uh, you know, so, so confident and you don't really want to raise money yet, right? But you need the money first, right? More than anything, I always recommend having the money lined up before you go find the deal because that's going to give you the confidence and the certainty you need in the first place to go and find the deal and put the time and the effort in. Um, but to, to do that, I really encourage working with partners um, I really do uh, because you don't have, it doesn't have to be just your first deal. You can work with people that have experience in the business, partner with them, even if you're not going to make as much profit. It's not about how much money you make on your first deal or second deal. It's about how much experience are you gathering. So if you can bring someone in that has experience and know that they're going to be looking over your shoulder and guiding you along the way, when you approach investors, the conversation completely changes. It's not about oh, this is my first deal. I really think I have what it takes. Give me a shot. It's about, I'm partnering with this group of experienced investors. They've done this many deals before and together we're going we're gonna to make this thing a great success, right? So, so just the, the way that story flows is going to be a lot, lot better. Um, so I, I would encourage, you know, even if you, even if you found a deal and you're going to, you're ready to raise the money, you're ready to do everything else, still bringing someone in on that first or second one, just so that you have uh, someone else to work with that's been there and that has experience. Because I think as an investor, uh, if you're a passive investor, you're, you're really doing them a service by bringing in experience to manage the oversight of, of both the due diligence and the asset management. Let's walk through a deal that you uncovered significant value. I have one that comes to mind, I think will provide a lot of value to all listeners and, and really give a perfect example of what that first deal, or, or maybe it's what the first larger deal in my case looks like and the feeling you have when that first hits. Now, just to note, I have yet to sell any of the multifamily deals that I've picked up. So we have yet to realize the value, but we can be pretty sure of, of where they are today, right? Now, in this deal, this is an instance where we did a 132 unit deal up in Kentucky, right? Is in, is in Louisville, Kentucky. This, had, this was our, I believe our third trip out to the market. And I always encourage everyone to go and actually get out there in the market. Even if you don't have the perfect deal lined up, just make trips, start showing face, let, let it be known that you're, you're eager to get into the market because that's how you're really going to get to know the brokers. That's how you're going to build trust. That's how you're going to get to see more deals ultimately. Now we had went out there and drove three properties so far that day. And, and from what we saw, they did not look like they did in the pictures. Um, <laughs> there was, there was one that was, was you know, drug infested. One of them was just, just uh, an old building that had a ton of CapEx nightmares waiting to happen. And the other one just was, was a, a no-go as well, just based on just location and um, not saying there's no opportunity in those kind of deals, but in this case there wasn't from, for the price that we're looking at. And, and, um, then we we got uh, got wind of of another off market deal, and we were, at this point we were almost as discouraged uh, as a whole because we we've been beat up so much throughout the day. But we said let's go check it out, right? Let's let's see what can happen. And obviously, you know, we're never going to say no to to seeing the next deal. So so we went out and we we drove uh, drove the last deal of the day, and we got on the property, and we just it almost felt like the, the skies opened up and the sun started coming out and things just looked rosy again. Uh, because we, we saw right away, this was a, this is a 1980s built, which was a good year. I think, you know, for a lot of us value add guys, it's kind of less CapEx headaches with the 1980s build, but there's still significant upside. 
Um, we saw that the, the exteriors had not really been updated at all since then. Uh, the, the, the parking lots had not been done over. Um, and then coming to get to know the way that they were operating the property in terms of their income and expenses, we got to know that it was, uh, it was a couple that had inherited the property. There was no rubs being taken place. The average rents were 530. Keep in mind, the rest of the market was doing about 720 in rents. Uh, the the exterior, the interiors had the old tan stoves, and they had, in some cases, even the the old retro green carpet on the floor, right? So, the, so there was no true upgrades getting done uh, throughout the interiors of the property, but it had really good bones, and the area was a really solid just suburb uh local suburb in the area so uh we we went into the property uh well first off we we got the price right and and the, the second we got the price looked at our numbers and we agreed to it uh we did not negotiate right this is at least you know my philosophy is that you know if, if the price makes sense so there's no need to go and try to take more off right we don't negotiate for the sake of negotiating we negotiate because we need to hit our returns right um so so made sense gave them the same exact price gave them 24 hours to respond to the loi because we knew uh you know it, it just made enough sense with with the amount of upside there and we were in at a great basis we expected it to be well, worth well more than that at, at sale uh so we went in uh we took over the property and let's think about the ways we added value number one uh, there was four acres of land so before we closed on it we used agency debt on the property um, lower leverage debt because it was our first one in this market, but we were able to get in and split off a land parcel to its own separate LLC. We sold that land off for, I think it was over a hundred thousand or so. Um, yeah, it was 125,000, which just a nice cherry on top, right? That wasn't making the deal, but it was a nice, you know, nice move that we otherwise wouldn't have had that extra money to show for. Um, we also leased up, there was next to the leasing office, there was, there was two, commercial units that were basically just like giant garages. So we cleaned out all the junk that was sitting in those and we started to lease those out to, to different local vendors in the area. I think one's an electric company, the other one might be a plumber or something like that, right? But we found another way to create additional income. So so first off, we're maximizing all the extra space there. We're, we're taking advantage of this, this big garage, we're, we're getting rid of the extra land, right? So, so making sure we're maximizing the space. Um, then from there, I always like to call the 90 day plan those, those initial action items and you take over the property, uh, right away, change the signage, right? We're going to rebrand the property. Uh, we're going to go out there and resurface uh, the parking lots as needed resurfacing right away. Uh, and we, so we set up a dog park. We set up a gazebo with, with a grill. And then we set up a dog park uh, with, with the, another piece of that extra land that was, that was still um, on our property. So we, we maximized the space and we made a really good dent to, you know, just showing people that we're here to add value, right? We're not here to just increase the rents, right? Naturally, we are going to bring these rents to market, right? And that, that's obviously a big part of our business plan. But somehow amidst this, we were able to bring the rents up, kind of staggering it, right? Because you want to avoid the mass exodus where everyone moves out all at once because you just go up $200. That's just not our business plan. We wanted to kind of do a little bit more gradually where we go from 520 to you know, low 600s, and then we test it out to the higher 600s. And now finally, after 18 months or so, we're getting to the low 700s. Um, so, so we're kind of gradually creeping that up and keeping the occupancy north of 90% along the way um, the best we can. And we actually were managing to get good positive reviews from the residents, even though they're starting to go up in rent. They're, they're giving positive reviews because we're, we're handling problems that were not being handled by the previous 
landlords and they were great people. They just were kind of burnt out. Right. And they, they just were not doing the same, giving it the same attention. Right. So, so now we're handling all the, the deferred maintenance problems that have been taking place. We're starting to make the place look nicer. We're starting to build more of a community look and feel to the project. And we even started to paint the exteriors. We didn't paint all the exteriors. We painted about half the exteriors so that the next owner can, can finish the job in terms of that. But uh, we painted all the exteriors that are roadside. So we just made it much more, attractive from a curb appeal standpoint um, and uh, you know made it much more modern looking and the residents just responded in kind they were you know very very happy about that and I believe the income uh, gross income on a monthly basis went from I, I, I want to say it was say 60,000 or so to to over 90,000 or so with by the end of that first uh, 12, 12 months, which was pretty insane, right? I wouldn't underwrite to that. Uh, it actually, you know, by, by 12 months in, uh, we were, we were actually doing better than I, I initially projected we'd be doing by, you know, the end of our second year. So, um, you know, that, that was definitely just a great, great project overall. Um, and, and it's one of those things where I had looked at, you know, hundreds of properties. I don't know the exact number, but I'm sure it was well over a hundred properties um, before this one came up. And it almost felt too good to be true when everything started to make sense. We just kind of were scratching our heads saying, that's the price that, you know, this is the upside. Are these really what the, the comps are getting? Driving through the comps, we're kind of verifying everything. And and it really does feel too good to be true sometimes when when the deal comes up. I mean, I'm sure there are deals that are too good to be true, and and you know, there's other problems that you're not seeing. But but um, you know, just just know that you know a lot of times you can be discouraged when you're looking at a lot of deals and, and things are tough, right? It's been a tight market lately, but but that is you know they, there are deals out there, and it just takes it takes uh, persistence to to go through and pull through. So yeah, I think on that deal, I mean, I talked about the gross income, but as far as the the returns, uh, I know we projected a 15 investor IRR, roughly uh, 20 deal, 20% total deal IRR, I believe. And, and I know we're, we're well ahead of schedule on that one. So, um, you know, we'll see where the exit pans out, but it'll, it'll be you know, well above that. That IRR is based on what, a five-year hold? That's correct. Yeah, five-year hold. Right. And we, we actually were, were, were probably going to sell before um, COVID just because we've been doing so great, but um, we had long-term debt on it. So it, we're not really we're, we're going to be patient at this point and just wait until the market's warm enough for us to, to go back there. I think we should clear, you know, if we were in at, uh, you know, mid forties uh, per unit, we, we expect to be, you know, well over, we'll say hopefully 20,000 more, you know, per unit uh, on, on the property, just depending on how the market plays out. It's really fantastic to see in your transition period of increasing the, the effective monthly rent, 30% from you said 60 grand a month to 90 approximately 90 grand a month not only increasing rent collections but you're also getting positive reviews from the the tenants you're adding significant value into their quality of life yep and i think the way that you do that is have a really regimented 90 day plan as far as your takeover plan and make it value for value. So go out there and implement your 90 day plan, put it to work, start upgrading the signage, upgrading the lighting, up doing all the exterior stuff because you're not gonna go in in the middle of where someone lives and put new flooring in, right? You're not gonna be able to get to the interior stuff until usually they move out or, or there's some kind of uh, circumstance with a turn or they switch units or something like that, right? So, so oftentimes you wanna start with the exterior stuff because that affects everyone. 
and it really makes a nice impression early on. We haven't touched on the rebranding that you did on this particular deal. Did it change the overall perception of the asset within the community? And did the rebrand attract a different uh, tenant into the, the rent role? So in this case, the name was just a name from back in the 80s. And it just I think sounded like it was a little bit age at this point. So I think with us rebranding it, it didn't, it mattered less about the name uh, and more about just the fact that we were rebranding it, right? And, and sometimes some places carry a bad stigma. So you're really trying to heavily rebrand that and it takes a lot. In this case, it was just an old name and it was just, you know, it, ownership just had not done much to the property in, in a long time. So I think it just made it very clear that with the new signage, with the new name, with, uh, with the new management company, uh, with, with all the, the exterior work getting done, uh, it, just, it just showed clearly that things are going to get better here, right? And that's the message we want to get across is that this place is going to get better. You know, we're, we're here to improve your lives. We're here to, you know, create a, create a community. And, uh, and that's what we, what we represent. And that, that was our, our intention. And, and almost always, uh, you know, we, we would probably rebrand uh, a property. I mean, there's some cases that you, you wouldn't need to, but, you know, we're buying value added assets. So if you're trying to explain, you know, the, the value you're going to be adding, um, I think it's just better to start, start fresh and start, start new versus trying to just take a name and, and shift the perception on it. At the time of this recording, we're a couple months into the coronavirus quarantine. How are you underwriting deals now? Um, and how mm -hmm. is that underwriting different from 90 days ago when you were underwriting deals? So 90 days ago when I was underwriting deals, I think it was a little bit more clear in terms of what I wanted to hit with a target return for investors and for the deal itself, right? I think I, I had kind of the baseline that was probably pretty similar to what a lot of other people do with probably just different assumptions and things like that. But things have definitely changed a lot. I, I have friends that have all differences in, in opinions. I think all of us can, can agree though that we think pricing is going to go down more still at this point in time, right? Uh, we think there's going to be a dip. It's just how much of a dip and how long until that dip occurs and how long does it last for, right? That's, that's really where I, I, I speaking to industry veterans, that's where we stand. Now, as far as my underwriting, I'm still of the mindset that there are still deals out there. What those deals look like is subjective, but it always is. I would say for me, in my case, I'm putting more weight on the actuals in terms of the financials that are coming in. I'm taking, putting less weight on any market appreciation and I'm putting a little bit less weight on any forced appreciation in terms of being able, and, and the time it's going to take, uh, I'm extending the time it's going to take to be able to, to creep rents that are below market up to what we would consider the market. So, so I'm just shifting the amount of weight I'm putting on the different factors of, of where the value gets added because you have in-place value if you buy at a good basis, and that I'm paying a lot of attention to. Anything I'm looking at, I'm hoping that we're in at a basis that is lower than any of the sales comps over the last two years, um, assuming it's a real value-add deal. I also wanna see that there's been comps that have already traded at around what I would like this deal to trade at once the value is created in the deal. 
right? So just looking a lot more at the basis currently, what the in-place numbers are like, being more conservative in terms of the the creeping rents up to uh, up to market, and and you know more conservative in terms of the future growth of you know as far as markets. And to be honest, I'm I'm just looking for better returns. I'm I'm just you know more than anything, uh, you know, making sure that the deal is going to result in a better investor return than a deal would in a standard market and better you know, overall deal return. So um, I, I guess that's, those are the big things in a summary that I, that I, can, I can basically put in, into a nutshell, um, but it's just making sure that the deal makes a lot of sense, that your downside's relatively low and the upside's higher than it would typically be because you're willing to take the risk and move during a time where a lot of other people are sitting on the sidelines. The current deals that you have under your control, how have the collections been in the last 60 days? We've heard multiple reports that collections overall have been not hit as hard as expected. Um, how are you seeing it out there with your portfolio? No, that's definitely been the case for us. I would say that a lot of the previous deals we've done are, are C-class 1970s built properties. So the C-class will get hit a little bit harder than the B-class will. But on average, we're, or even on our properties that we've done let, you know, worse on, we're still uh, you know, less than 10% uh, behind where we would be on, on a typical month. And, and it hasn't put us in any, any point of uh, discomfort as far as you know, being able to, or I guess it hasn't raised any red flags, we'll say. <laughs> um, it's obviously not ideal, but just not, it's not danger zone by any means. So we're, we are pretty happy with the, how, how things have been getting put together. And I think that's been a result of being very proactive on the management side and making sure we're very actively managing the residents and setting expectations up front. I have found that the deals that I have that are a little bit newer um, or even sometimes the smaller deals, so deals that are less than 100 units, um, I've found those have held better occupancy across the board, and, and in some cases, not been phased at all. Um, but you know, the, the C-class stuff is naturally going to be a little bit uh, more variable because it's more of a balance sheet issue, right? And people run out of savings uh, you know, on lower-income uh, properties. We're going to close out this interview with the hard-hitting questions. These are the questions that we ask every one of our guests. First off, what is your why? So my why is just the fact that I love building things and I love watching things come to life. More than anything, I get excited less about just doing a deal, but really about building an organization long-term, building systems, and just building something that's here to, to last and, and, and just working towards being the best version of myself and of an organization that we can be. Besides your alarm clock, what gets you out of bed every morning? At this point, I don't use an alarm clock. So I, at this point, I just get out of bed and focus on learning first thing in the morning. I'd say more than anything, I love learning. I love reading, love listening to podcasts like this, right? Anything I can do to just absorb as much information as possible and, and get a little bit smarter every day is, is uh, what gets me, keeps me juiced up. On that note, can you recall a book that you've recently read that has impacted you significantly? So recently, in addition to real estate, I've actually been working with a couple partners to launch a real estate technology software platform. And one of the big technology books that most people in the space have read or, or heard of, at least, is The Lean Startup. Um, and, I, and I highly encourage anyone to pick that book up, even if you have no intentions of ever being in technology. It's not just about that. It's about innovation and the way it works in general. And it's totally even shifted the way I, I view the way we do value add real estate deals, because a lot of people want to go in with this cookie cutter business plan and project where they're going to be to the penny in the next five years and have an IRR that goes to the second decimal point. And the reality is, these are just forecasts, right? And and we need more than anything to remain flexible and be able to pivot 
along the way with our business plans. Oh, people aren't really paying extra for the stainless steel appliances. Okay, let's hold back. Let's hold back that capital. Let's start doing different types of upgrades, right? And and being able to to pivot on your business plan, I think, and adjust to what the market's giving you, I think, is is such a valuable uh, learning lesson for me and a big big shift in the way I look at things. How do you like to blow off steam? Really, for me, it's exercise and meditation i'd say those two things keep me cool right because we're, we're most of us are working long hours long days and i'd say just the two things that keep me sane uh, outside of the reading is is yeah, meditating at least 20 minutes a day and then exercising how can our listeners get a hold of you or learn a little bit more about you you can reach out to me my email dylan marma at gmail.com you can Check out cirruscapital.com if you want to visit the site. I'm on most major social media platforms, so should be easy to access. Dylan Marma, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for adding your value today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating and a review, which will help us introduce the podcast to other listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will give you access to other episodes you may have missed. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.